that, we are going to get started. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're enjoying this gradual shift to the nice, cool, godly fall weather that we're entering into. We're picking up in Exodus 24. So if you have your Bible, turn there. Exodus 19, Israel came to Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, Israel received the ten words, ten commandments. <laughs> then Exodus 21 through 23, Israel received the, uh, the law that expanded on those ten words. So they received the commandments and then they received the laws. Now, at the end of Exodus 23, then they... Uh, God gave them the final promise of what he would do for them as their God. That he would give them the land, that he would uh, go before them, that he would drive out their enemies, that he would do all of the things that a sovereign king would pledge to do to a vassal state. And that's what Israel is. Israel is the vassal. God is the king. In ancient Near East, that term was the suzerain. And so the theologians will call this a suzerainty treaty. Because throughout the second millennium BC, there were these treaties that would be entered into. A king, a warlord, a deliverer, someone powerful would come. He would rescue a lesser nation or a lesser state. Uh, he would defeat, defeat their enemies. He would bring them out of captivity. He would drive out their foes. He would build them uh, infrastructure. He would do all these things. And then in return, that vassal would pledge their allegiance to that king and to that king's God. And they would make a covenant, a suzerainty covenant treaty, and it had these specific parts, and it would start with a prologue of what the king had done for the people, recounting the events, it would give stipulations, this is what you're to do now, to show your allegiance to this king. It would give promises that if they did that, what the king would do for them, how he would protect them. Uh, it would give curses for disobedience. If you break this, this will happen. And then it would give blessings for obedience, you know, if you keep this, then I became will do this and this and this. And then at the end, there would be a covenant meal. There would be a sacrifice made. The two parties would agree. They would make two copies of this law, this covenant treaty. One copy would remain in the city, in the temple of the new God that the people were uh, pledging to their allegiance to. The other copy would go back to the temple of the king and the temple of the king's gods so that both people would have copies of this covenant contract. And that's how you made a binding covenant agreement as a people, as a nation in the ancient Near East. Now, all of the Torah in loose form is structured around this concept. And particularly, the whole book of Deuteronomy follows the same outline as the Second Millennium Suzerainty Treaty Covenants. But we also see it here in this section of Exodus as well. Because God has laid out what he's done. He's brought his out of captivity. He's rescued them from the power of the other gods. He's brought them into freedom. He's given them a new identity. He's promised them, if you obey me, this is what I will do for you as a nation. And then he's also promised them, but if you disobey me, this is what I'll do to you as a nation. And then there is now going to be the covenant ratifying meal that they're going to share together. And that's what we see in Exodus 24. This is the final part of this section of the book of Exodus. Then he said to Moses, God said this to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, that's Aaron's two oldest sons, 
and 70 of the elders of Israel. You're to worship at a distance. Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must come near. Excuse me, the others must not come near. And the people may not come up with him. So God is saying, representatives of the people, right? All the people camped around the bottom of the mountain have to stay away. God put up the boundary markers and said, don't, don't break through, don't come up on the mountain. We saw that in Exodus uh, 19. Then he says, now you, Nadab, Behu, and 70 elders come up the mountain. And you're going to worship. You're going to represent the people. You're going to come mediate between me and the people. And then out of those, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu are going to come up further with Moses. Because they're a little bit closer in terms of office that God has for them. They're the priests. Aaron and his two oldest sons. These are the, the head of what will become the priest. And then Moses finally is going to come up to the very top of the mountain. So God's instilling these levels of sanctification even among the people of Israel on this mountain. They're entering into the presence of God at this point. Now, when God gives them the directions for what's going to become the tabernacle, that whole, the whole structure of the tabernacle is going to reflect this series of, of sanctifying levels on a, on a horizontal scale. But it's going to be built in a way that reflects the vertical holiness of God, and we'll see that in coming weeks. But they're to come up and they're to worship the people, stay at a distance. Verse 3. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, Ten Commandments, Book of the Covenant, words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. That's the second time they've said, yes, we agree with this covenant. Second time they've pledged to obey it. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Burnt offerings were those particular special offerings that the entirety of the sacrifice would be burned up on the altar. All of it was devoted to God. All of it was given symbolically to God by being burned up, and as the smoke rose, that was the symbolism of the offering, the valuable thing being offered up to God, completely destroyed. However, fellowship offerings were those offerings where only a token part of the animal was offered on the altar, like the fat uh, entrails or the fatty part, or not the entrails, the fatty part or the, or the liver or something. The, the best parts were put on the altar and burned up, but then the rest of the animal was eaten by the people. This is how Israel got their meat for a good portion of their diet, was through these fellowship offerings. They would share the meal in worship together. So they did that. Uh, they offered burnt offerings, sacrificed young bulls, fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood from these sacrifices and put it in bowls. The other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, which we've just read the past five or six weeks, took the book of the covenant, read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. That last phrase, we will obey, that verb they use, obey, is shema. We will listen to, we will obey. And in Israel, um, this would be come to develop into what is the shema, where every day, every night, faithful Jews would say, shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel, obey, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So they're pledging their obedience, they're listening to the covenant. We're going to hear it. We're going to obey it. We agree to it. This is the third time they've agreed to this covenant. So they don't have any objections to this. This is a good deal for Israel, and they recognize it. 
They're no longer slaves. They have the sovereign king of the universe as their new suzerain, their new king, their new leader. What's not to love about that? He just asks that they remain faithful to him and him alone. So they agree to it. Once they've agreed, third time, verse 8, Moses took the blood, the other half of the blood, not sprinkled on the altar, and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Takes the blood, sprinkles it onto the people, dashes it onto the people. They would have gotten the blood on them. They would have gotten the blood on their clothes. This is before Clorox. The blood would have stayed on their clothes for the entirety of the existence of their clothes. Blood is a big staining object. If you've ever tried to get it out of a white garment, you realize that. So they're taking this on themselves, this blood of the covenant, this blood that symbolizes the life, and it symbolizes the death of the sacrifice that they've offered. They are, they are, they are in symbolically taking on all of this agreement on themselves. And all of the, the, the symbolism that goes into the Levitical sacrificial system, they're agreeing to it, they're entering into, they are receiving the blood to cover them. Now this will, will develop in the Old Testament in many ways, but this will come to fruition fully in the New Testament. What does Jesus say in Matthew 26, Mark 14, 1 Corinthians 11? This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he did that during the Passover, which celebrates this whole thing that we're reading. So Jesus was saying by doing that, I am bringing you out from under this long period of thousands of years of, of living under the Mosaic Sinai covenant you are now being brought out of captivity, not from Egypt, but from sin itself, into the fellowship of God's people. Not in a geographical location, but in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he is, Jesus is transferring them from one covenant which had been broken and restored and broken and restored and eventually had become, by the people's disobedience, had become obsolete. Not because of the covenant, but because of the people's sinfulness. Paul will go into a whole spiel on that in the 68. And he's brought them out from under that into the new covenant that had been promised all along. So every time you're in church and you take communion, whether you take from the same cup, whether you get the little Baptist shot glass cups, whether you do the intinction where you Methodist dip it and then eat it, However you do communion, nothing wrong with any of those, it's all symbolizing the same overall narrative story. It's all symbolizing your participation, my participation within the new exodus that Jesus brought about. And if, if we don't understand the first exodus that Moses brought about, then we miss a huge dimension of the new exodus that Jesus about. That's why studying Exodus is foundational for studying the Gospels. All of this imagery is in the background, swirling in the minds of Jesus' disciples on that night of the Last Supper. All of this and more. And so it's crucial to remember that. But back in the original setting, back B.C., we're here. The people are agreeing to this covenant. They're taking the blood of this covenant on them. And they're saying, yes, we'll do this. We agree. Sign us up. We're in. 
We like this agreement and it's on. Verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. This is the expected outcome when you make a covenant. You would eat and drink in the presence of all parties involved. Except now it's not an earthly king that they're making this covenant with, so they don't go to a banquet hall. They actually go up into the presence of God, the glory of God, this thunderous cloud of fire that's filled this mountain, and they see, and it just says they saw God. Now the Septuagint and Aramaic translations that go way, 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 way back, they try to soften this because they were like, wait a minute, nobody can see God and live. The Bible says that. And they say, so some of them say they saw the likeness of God, or they saw the form of God, or they saw the glory of God. But the Hebrew text doesn't say that. It just says they saw God. And it doesn't give any description except for under his feet was something like this. It was like they're looking up into the sky and they can just make out. They know they're seeing God. They don't know what else to describe beyond that. All the other prophets that have visions of God are kind of be in the same boat. How do we describe the indescribable? And so the only thing they can think of describe is under his feet, where it where was standing, hovering, floating, whatever, under his feet was like this, this pavement, it was like a pavement, it was like a something. He was standing on this firmament. He was, he was, he was different. He was separated from us. Even in that cloud, there was a separation between them and God. Because his holiness is truly unapproachable, and the only exceptions are the ones he makes in Scripture. There are few times where God does allow himself to be seen by humans, by sinful humanity. It's always after, um, at a monumental event in the history of God's people, or after there's been purification, or after there's been consecration, or something like that. And God will allow glimpses of himself. And there's no description, you know. It doesn't tell you what size shoe he wore. It just says under his feet was something like that. Now, all those questions that we want to ask, the text just doesn't even go into those. Most likely because it can't. Later, the prophets will, will be reaching for descriptions to try to describe God. And even then, they won't be able to. So let's say things like, he looked something like the likeness of such and such. You know, it's like this description that doesn't even fit fully. Because they're seeing the indescribable. They saw God, and the last verse, verse 11, says they saw God and ate and drank. And that word saw is different than the word saw in the previous verse. The word saw in the previous verse is, uh, is, is yarah, which means to see, just the normal to see, to look at. This word, I think, is chazah, and it means like to gaze at or to see a vision of or to, to intently stare at something. It's used to vision sometimes, but it's also used to gazing at something. So they're they're really seeing something. They're, they're experiencing, they're in the presence of God, they're sharing a meal, and God is allowing them. He's not lifting his hand against them. His holiness is not consuming them as it should, which is part of the miraculous nature of this section in the book. The Lord said to Moses, verse 12, Excuse me, verse 12, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. That word instruction is Torah. It means teaching. It means, it gets translated as law, but it means teaching. It comes from the verb yara, which means to point. 
His Torah is supposed to point the way for people to live in accordance with God's covenant. So I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law, the commands I've written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here, lower down the mountain, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. Right? So Aaron and Hur were the two that were kind of like Moses' right and left hand lieutenants. And Moses is saying, I'm going up, I'm taking Joshua, but you guys wait here. If there's any disputes among the people, because we've seen Moses is the one who would judge cases of people brought before him, Aaron and Hur are going to decide those. They're my delegates for while I'm gone. This means that Moses knew he would be up there for a while, for long enough for there to be disputes and rulings and things like that. Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. That word glory means, it's the Hebrew word kavod, it means heaviness. Literally, it means heaviness. And so the idea of when you see, like when people talk about the glory of the Lord, the best way to think about it is God's presence that's so thick it can be felt. That's how one of my theology professors, or excuse me, one of my Old Testament professors said it. He said, when you think when you hear the glory of the Lord, it is an almost tangible experience of God's presence. So it fills the temple when the, when the sacrifices are made and God actually comes down and fills the temple. It's, it's, the, it's the fullness that's still veiled, but that's it's uh, perceptible to the senses, the heaviness of God. And heaviness is a good word because it underscores the, the presence and the gravity of the situation. God is showing up. These aren't ecstatic experiences. These aren't holy goosebumps. These aren't, you know, singing a praise song until you get real happy and start crying or any of that stuff. This is something beyond any of that. This is the heaviness of God that descends on this mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now the phrase 40 days and 40 nights is a stock phrase in Hebrew, and it can, it can mean exactly 40, or it can mean 35, 48, somewhere. I mean, it's it's like when we say dozens and dozens, or something like that. It just means a set period of time. Um, and, and you'll see it up throughout Scripture. Things happen in, in 40 days, 40 nights, or, or in implements of 40. So it's emphasizing that Moses is up there, and he's up there for a while. And he's up there with God face to face. He's up there supernaturally. Joshua's with him, but not in the direct presence of God. So it's almost like Joshua's probably the, the you know, wait here at, at Camp 4. I just saw Everest this past week. So like you got base camp, and then Joshua and Moses to Camp 4. And then Moses went up the Hillary step to the summit of Everest, in Sinai. Um, and it's this supernatural occurrence where God himself is meeting with Moses and sustaining him for 40 days or 40 nights. What's he doing up there? Well, we're going to find out in the next seven or eight chapters. He's giving Moses the pattern for the tabernacle. He's giving Moses directions for worship. And he's giving Moses the, the, um, the, the vision of what worship should look like under this covenant. 
And Moses is going to come down, and he's going to consecrate some uh, artisans in, among Israel, two in particular. And it's, it's going to say that God's going to fill them with his Holy Spirit. First time anybody in the Bible has ever mentioned as being filled with the Spirit. It's an artist. And then, I'm an artist, so uh, he's going to fill them with the Holy Spirit. And then they're going to create this elaborate structure and all the implements and all the vessels and all the garments that go with it. And it'll say, according to the pattern I showed you on the mountain. Over and over, God will repeat that. So God is showing Moses, here is how my people are going to dwell in my presence. And here's how I'm going to dwell in their presence. Because when Israel looks at the mountain, they're terrified. So terrified that they don't even want to go near it. They don't even want to hear God speak anymore. It's so overpowered. We saw that in Exodus 19 or Exodus 20. So the conundrum that God has is, I want to dwell with my people over and over. I will be their people. They will be my God. You see that throughout the Bible. That's how Revelation ends. It ends with God dwelling among his people in the new creation. The conundrum, though, is that God's people are sinful. How does God dwell amongst sinful people without consuming them as a consuming fire? Well, he puts into place an entire system, an entire paradigm of how the common can approach the holy, how the unclean can approach the sanctified. And he builds these layers of buffering between his unmediated presence and all of the people. Because his desire is to dwell with the people, not at the top of a mountain. His desire is to be with his people in their midst, right in the center of his people. Like they're going to camp out, and when Numbers is giving the um, directions for how they're supposed to camp, basically it's going to lay Israel out in a square camp pad. Four tribes on each side, and then right in the middle is going to be the, the, the three tribes, or four tribes of the Levites, and then right in the middle of that is going to be the tabernacle. And then right in the middle of the tabernacle is going to be the Holy of Holies. And that's how God wants to dwell with his people in their midst. But in order to do that, they have to, he has to, he's conditioning them, basically. Teaching them through object lessons. What things like holiness, consecration, and sanctification, what those terms mean and what they look like. Not just in everyday life. He's already given them the laws that are going to do that. Here's how you're going to live among each other. Now he's going to give them the actual directions. Here's how you're going to relate to me through this system that I have set up that will be a millennia-long object lesson. It's like the first, if you go to a church that has children's time, I'm going to go to a church that has children's time where the pastor calls the kids a lost art in these days, but in, in typical churches that most of us grew up in, the pastor will have a children's sermon. And that means he'll get down out of the pulpit and sit down on the front steps and invite all the children in the church. They'll come, they'll sit around him, and he'll give a little mini sermon, usually, usually using some kind of little toy or a drawing or a picture or something that the kids can relate to to just teach them one thing. Most of the pastors are doing that kind of for the kids, but mostly for their parents. They're listening. They're explaining it in kid language for the parents listening. But they'll give them a little object lesson. And then that will stick in the kids' minds. And these are like three-year-olds and four-year-olds. And then the preacher will usually give them a piece of candy or something to make it worth it. And then they go back to their seats. 
Um, but that's kind of what God's doing. This is like the first children's sermon. But he's doing it at a national level. He's going to give them this little model of the tabernacle. They're going to build it. They're going to actually live within it, functioning, celebrating, engaging with God. And it's going to go on like that for centuries. And then at the right time, when God chooses at just the right moment, when, when everything, and we can't even get into it now, but when all of these factors all fall into place and it all comes to a head, then God is going to step into the midst of those people as one of them, a carpenter's son, and he's going to then bring that entire history to its fulfillment and then launch it off into something even greater, which is what we're part of today. So that's how the layers that we have to read this passage through as we're looking back on it. But this is, this is kind of like the happy ending to the Exodus so far. They've come out of Egypt, out of slavery. They're now a people. They've got laws. They've got guaranteed protection from the mightiest king of them all, which is God. They're about to get a whole way of worshiping him, of living among him. And, and they're, they're right there at the base of Mount Sinai, camp there. They'll be there for a year. They don't leave Mount Sinai until halfway through the book of Numbers. So all of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first half of Numbers, they are camped around Mount Sinai. We're, we're, we're at the destination for right now. And it seems like the happy ending. But what's going to happen in Exodus 32 is going to be a seeming disaster. They're going to completely throw it all away. And it's going to look like God is, is going to do to them what he did to Egypt. God's actually even going to threaten to do to them what he did to Egypt. And it's going to be the mediation of Moses that averts that punishment on behalf of all the people. So it looks like a happy ending. It looks like everything's on track and, and so far so good. But we're going to see it's going to immediately take a turn for the worst. But before we get to that, the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at these, this thing that God's showing Moses these 40 days. What's this structure? What's the tabernacle? Yeah, that's those words we don't even use anymore. What does it mean? In Hebrew, mishkan. It means dwelling. It means tent. It's where you dwell. It's where you live. Temporary. Mobile dwelling. Uh, God's going to show him that. He's going to give him. It's going to be super detailed. This is going to be the parts of the Bible where, again, you read this in a small group and you just get bored and skip over it. So we're going to try to zoom through it. Not stopping with every detail. We won't say, what does every little brass implement symbolize? What does every, you know, it's this many cubits wide. What does that mean? You know, theologians did that throughout the history of the church. And you come up with all kinds of fanciful ideas. What we're going to do is get the big picture of it. The structure. What it symbolizes. What its purpose is. What it would have meant to the Israelites. Then we can draw out from that the eternal principles that it is communicated through its temporal uh, reality. And then at the end of that, then we'll see the disaster. And then we'll see the grace that comes right after the disaster. And then the reaffirmation of the covenant. And then we'll be close to the end of Exodus. So we're, we're nearing the home stretch, but we've got some big chunks of material to get through. But the action is going to pause for like the next five weeks or so. Four or five weeks. The action is going to pause as we are brought into this thing. This tabernacle, this structure, this priests, and consecration, and all of that kind of stuff. But remember, all of this is laying the foundation 
for every term that the New Testament uses. When you, you can't read the book of Hebrews and understand it if you don't have a working knowledge of what we're reading right now. You just, you just can't. You'll come up with all kinds of stuff that the text doesn't mean if you don't do what we're doing now, which is go through the thing that Hebrews in the New Testament is writing about, which is this sacrificial system of structure. But we're out of time now. So have a great week. Come back next week. Bring a friend. Uh, we got seconds on salad, but you guys killed the soup. So bad news. Have an awesome week.